Welcome. I'm Diane Fleet, and you are joining us for KCATV's podcast series. Today, I have Jody Jaggers, who's the Director of Pharmacy Public Health Programs. And today, we're going to be talking about overdose awareness, recognition, and response. Welcome, Jody. It's really good to have you in the studio. Hey, glad to be here, Diane. Thank you. So, I was really excited to hear that this was a conversation we were having today. Excited, probably, maybe for wrong reasons, that it's something that is too much on our minds and our hearts and our presence. A lot of folks that tune into KCADB series are folks that do frontline domestic violence advocacy in our shelters, but I know other folks that are doing frontline advocacy work in other disciplines might be listening as well. But I think a lot of folks went into their work thinking, we're going to be talking about domestic violence, or we're going to be talking about children's advocacy. But unfortunately, there is such an overlap and folks that are dealing with trauma also are often dealing with substance use, and our advocates need to be a little more comfortable and competent and confident, perhaps, in knowing signs, knowing best practices, and really being able to meet people as as whole individuals and not just domestic violence folks. Domestic violence folks come with lots of other things, and certainly substance use and misuse is one piece of that. So I'm really glad to have you here today. I think we we were talking just a second ago before we started, and I think it's really important that we give recognition and we give kudos to those that are really supporting this effort, supporting this work, funding us. And I know that was really critically important to you because we couldn't do this work if we didn't have that. So do you want to yeah. kind of chat about that? Yeah. So I actually, I straddle probably four different grants, but I work with the Kentucky Pharmacists Association as part of the Kentucky Pharmacy Education and Research Foundation. So we're the, the foundation arm of KPHA. And we work with the state of Kentucky through a couple different partnerships. And the two primary ones are the Opioid Data to Action Grant, which is through the University of Kentucky, and it's a CDC-funded grant. Historically, that does not allow for the purchase of naloxone, but it does allow a lot of other efforts in, in that sphere. And so they help support our mobile naloxone education program and some other academic detailing efforts that we have within our organization. And they do tons of other stuff as well. So they're the ones that actually pay my salary. But then on the flip side, we have the Kentucky Opioid Response Effort, which is part of the, the State Department for Public Health. And it's from the SAMHSA organization, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration federally. And uh, it's a, a pretty substantial grant here in Kentucky. And again, naloxone is just one part of it. They focus on things like housing and, and job readiness and all kinds of stuff. But they, uh, since it's SAMHSA, SAMHSA has historically allowed for the purchase of naloxone. And so that is who is basically purchasing the, the Narcan and, and the other products that are available so that we can get those out to all the different agencies around the state we do. So they're the two biggest ones. And then there's others that I feel like are worth, you know, giving a shout out to the Office of Drug Control Policy here in Frankfurt, where they allow us to supply law enforcement with naloxone in jails. So those are the three that are that are really purchasing the naloxone and making these efforts possible from a financial perspective. That's a long list, which I think it's a well-needed list, right? Because again, I think the impact of this has been not just in Kentucky, but I think Kentucky, I saw some numbers we were talking a little bit today of just the impact of substance use. And, and, and also we'll talk a little bit later about fentanyl, but how fentanyl introduction into the system of drug use has really kind of been a bit of a game changer. And so staying a bit ahead of that with these partners is probably critically important. Yeah, the staying ahead part's almost impossible, it feels like. But but yeah, I mean, if you've seen the numbers, I don't know if you've talked about them in the past in your podcast, but you know, from 2019 to 2020, we saw an almost 50% increase in overdose deaths in Kentucky. And obviously 2020 was a bad year for everybody with the pandemic, but it particularly hit hard 
folks in the substance use community, whether they be folks in recovery or folks that still were, were using. And then 2020 to 21, we saw around 2,200, a little bit over 2,200 individuals die. And that was almost a 15% increase from the previous year's baseline. So we don't have the formal numbers for 2022 out yet, but by all accounts that I've heard, they're trending as at least as bad or worse in 2021. So it's definitely it's hard. It's, it's, we're kind of trending in the wrong direction for that. And one of the biggest alarms for us too, is that we're seeing for the first time a faster rise and increase overdose deaths in minority populations. The African-American population in the state is the numbers aren't as high, but, but the percentage increase in the population is going up at a much faster rate than the others. And so that's another one of those, you know, how do we make sure that an already underserved population isn't further underserved and further struggling with that? So lots of, lots of moving pieces and things to try to consider. So I, Having done this work, you, not me, <laughs> so Jody, having done this work, even though we're trending kind of in the wrong direction, are there certain things that we are, I would imagine that we're gleaning that we need to target certain, you know, preventative measures that we're sort of knowing right now who is probably most at risk of substance use, misuse, and overdose? Like, what what is the research telling us? Because I think in my world also of domestic violence, there's a shroud of myth that sort of overrides lots of things that we just from research now, we've been doing this work a long time, domestic violence work, we've been doing it now for about 50 years. So we have some information as opposed to just anecdotal. I imagine the same thing is true with treatment and preventative work. So who currently are we really focused on and who is most at risk? Sure. I know there's a couple factors to that. Right now, SAMHSA, like one of their pushes is naloxone saturation across the state, you know, get it out there as much as possible and as many hands as possible. And I think that's a good idea. I don't know that that's ultimately going to help. I don't, I don't want to say move the needle because that sounds like, you know, crassus, but as far as, you know, that that expression to, to swing things back the other direction, it's a good start. The, the folks at risk, though, are, are primarily, if you've overdosed before. So that's the highest risk. You're, And then right there with it are folks that are in, that are abstinent for some reason or other, whether they are abstinent because they are trying to be sober, trying to be, you know, live in sobriety and, and recover, or if they've been involuntarily abstinent. So incarcerated individuals, that's, that's a huge concern because the reality is if you go to jail and you have a substance use disorder, especially if it goes undiagnosed or you know, undetected, when you come out, if you have not been allowed to have access to treatment in jail or some sort of something to help you resolve that or start on some path to kind of protect yourself there. When people return to use, they very often go back to using exactly what they were using before because that's what they remember. And so when that happens, before fentanyl, that was already dangerous because your tolerance can go down you know, just 24 to 48 hours of not using, you're going to have a slightly lower tolerance. And so once you throw fentanyl in the mix, so it's really hard to have a tolerance for fentanyl when when you're depending on what your use level is because it's such a potent drug that it's just it's really driving the overdose rates. So, you know, anybody that's that's in recovery or that's incarcerated, those are right now some of our biggest concerns. You mentioned earlier and we could you could do a whole podcast, I'm sure you do regularly on trauma because that's really what ultimately is driving a lot of this is unresolved trauma, unresolved mental health issues that you know people try to self-medicate. I mean, there's there's a myriad of things that, that are going on. And that's why these grants do other things as well. You know, housing is incredibly important. Having a job is incredibly, all these things are are indicators and they're, they're markers of success, potentials of success. People that have jobs and have housing are much more likely to have success in their recovery than people that don't. So there's just, there's so many pieces to the puzzle. Naloxone is one of them. And it is an important one because it's the life-saving part. It's the part that can actually help somebody get a second or third or 
10th chance, whatever it looks like. But yeah, those, those are the two highest risks though, are people that are in recovery or people that are just forced into abstinence for a period of time. You know, it's such a difficult thing. We've had, I don't know if you know Dr. Alex Ellswick, we've had him on podcast a few times and and um, he's really in a harm reduction model. And he will often talk about you know, sort of meeting folks where they are, knowing that treatment is not for everybody. People come to sobriety in different paths, keeping community around folks, keeping support around folks. And again, I don't mean to limit our audience to just folks that work in shelter and communal living, but it's such a balance, right? And so we often don't want to exit or depart or power over folks of this is what you should do, right? When that might not be what they want to do, but yet we have the balance of what's going on in our shelter. We might have women and children that are trying to stay adults staying sober. And so it's difficult in a community setting and then young ones in a community setting. And so oftentimes I sort of owned up to Alex one time when he was here is we sometimes treat residential treatment programs almost as an alternative housing program, right? Like I don't want to put you on the street, but you can't stay here in this active use on property. And it just becomes a real, it's just a complex issue. Um, But I find that many times our response to folks is to take away the things that they very much need, community, support, care, relationship. And so we sometimes will push folks away with, I think, best of intentions of trying to help them with their addiction or their misuse. But that sometimes can be the worst thing, perhaps. So it's it's just a real struggle, I think, for folks that are doing community living. The, the one part, though, that I really wanted to ask you a question, if you had suggestions, when we know somebody's coming from a detention center or prison setting and coming into community spaces or into private spaces, maybe they're coming back home and living with, you know, partner or mom or dad or whoever, is there some things that are best practice to help them with their sobriety in that return, that re-entry? You know, I am a pharmacist by profession. And so I tend to more often than not look at things from a pharmacologic perspective as far as that's concerned. And as of right now, the gold standard for for recovery treatment is MOUD or buprenorphine as part of that. MOUD is just medication for opioid use disorder. And the most popular, the best best studied and and the one that we have the best data for right now as far and it's ease of access as well because methadone is another one. Methadone has a lot of rules around it to make it somewhat onerous for people to access from a treatment perspective. But buprenorphine products like Suboxone, Subutex, things like that, those are the gold standard. And as far as if we're serious about wanting to help people in recovery, help people get from using illicit substances that they're buying on the street to using something that is safe and effective, that's that's really probably going to give some of the best chances. There's also, if abstinence is the desire of an individual, there's Vivitrol, which is a naltrexone injection. It lasts like a month. But the problem with naltrexone is you have to be completely abstinent for several days before you can even start it. And so that's that's hard to get. And that's completely abstinent, like no buprenorphine, no nothing. So that's that's tough for people. But I mean, I think ultimately keeping all options on the table because, and you mentioned Alex, you know, he's got a wonderful story and, and, and a wonderful view and, and experiences. And I love to listen to him talk. I love for people to hear him, but you know, he'll tell you that you have to have all options on the table because, you know, somebody buprenorphine may be the best thing ever for them to help them. For others, it's not, it's not a good option, you know, abstinence is, is perfect for some people, for others it's not. But you hit the nail on the head as far as community, having people that are there to support them. You know, again, we could do a whole discussion on stigma because that's that's a whole other 
ball game. But the reality is, you know, when we're talking addiction, we're talking substance use disorder, it's a chronic relapsing mental health disease. And we're getting better. I think society is getting better at recognizing that this isn't a moral failing. Yeah, there are choices involved often early on because nobody forces you to take that pill or nobody ever forces you to stick that needle in your arm. But it's, I liken it, and this is an imperfect analogy, but you know, to me it makes sense, but I liken it to kind of like diabetes. I mean, yes, diabetes is you know, often inherited, but probably the vast majority of diabetics, especially in Kentucky, have really poor dietary habits and poor exercise habits. And some of it is a genetic component, but they're not helping themselves at all. And so we don't look at somebody that's diabetic and say, well, if you're going to keep going to McDonald's, we're going to, we're taking that away from you. We're taking your medicine away from you or we're, you know, so we have to look at substance use disorder the same way. We have to realize that these folks are struggling with the disease of the brain and sometimes they're their decision-making is impaired and it is hard for them. Just like it is hard for any of us that struggle with weight loss or other things like that. We fall off the wagon. We you know, we return to our own use as far as eating and other things, just other unhealthy habits. So I think giving grace in a lot of those places is really important. And as soon as we start humanizing it and humanizing people, it, it starts to change how we view them and how we respond to them. It's so much easier sometimes to look at those that are worthy and those that are not worthy, right? We can really get into a place of that. And and then it just gets to be kind of an, you know, it, it seems like, I know when we have new staff come on, it's like, you know, you're going to have really bizarre conversations that you never thought you would maybe have. So again, I'll kind of flip it to a domestic violence world where someone might come to shelter. We automatically presume that this person is done in this relationship. They never want to see this person again. And we kind of start from that space. And it's like, we need to really talk about safety plans if they are going to continue to see that person. Or maybe there might be times where they have to do children exchange, or maybe this person is apologizing. There's that kind of in and out of the relationship. Not 100% sure it's over, So, but we need to be able to figure that out safely. So I'm coming to shelter, or I'm working with a domestic violence advocate so that I can have that community support as I'm figuring that out. I think substance use can be the same way. And, and so we have a lot of safety planning with folks when they're at our program of, if you're going to use, how do you safely use? Do you use it? Do you use drugs with somebody else? Where do your children go when you're using? And I think that that seems to fly in the face of a lot of, you know, just folks on the street going, that's just enabling. Like, what are you talking about? It's kind of like needle exchange. Like, what do you mean you're, you know what I mean? And so I do think we are shifting. I think societally we're shifting into having a more compassionate understanding, knowing that this isn't linear, that not everybody is, is just failed as they don't have enough willpower. They don't have enough, you know, strength to just sort of pick themselves up by their bootstraps kind of thing. But you have a tendency sometimes to fall back a little bit. There's a woman I've talked about her several times in the series. Her name's Patty Bland. She's now passed, but but she would often talk about rather than going, what drugs do you use or are you currently using? It was it would be more, we know that people who are experiencing trauma often use coping mechanisms such as, you know, so what is it that you use to help you cope? It's just a presumption that you might, because you have to build that trust and relationship. If you start with, I know you're never gonna go back to that partner, oh, I know you're never going to use again, people don't share. And it really is hard to, you know, kind of start that healing process. So I know I wasn't, there really wasn't a question in that other than just a strong commitment of, I think that this can be complicated. I do think we're moving a little bit. And I do think we're trying to get past the judgment and not worthy space with folks. I don't know, the, the, the word enabling I hear sometimes with our staff a little bit, like I feel like I'm enabling bad people behavior. I feel like I'm kind of checking off that I'm in support of this. Do you have any conversation about that? Uh, I mean, I have lots of thoughts. I think you mentioned earlier, you know, harm reduction. And I'm assuming 
because you mentioned it and didn't follow up, that that's probably something hopefully your listeners are familiar with, or maybe you've talked about it in the past. You know, if for those that maybe haven't heard it, you know, the idea of harm reduction is that folks across the spectrum, and this isn't just drug use, this is, you even mentioned, you know, domestic violence, there's harm reduction and how do you have safety planning? Same concept with drug use. How do you, we know that drug use isn't necessarily wise. It is often harmful to individuals' health. It is often harmful to society at large. So the idea of harm reduction is how do we mitigate that? How do we make it less harmful to the individual, less harmful to the society? And so with that, the idea of enabling, it's tough because there's just understanding what reality is and, and knowing that you can want something to be different. All you, you know, you can wish it all you want, but that doesn't change things. So how do we meet people where they are? And again, it's about building trust. And so if somebody doesn't trust you, if they feel like they're being judged, they feel like they are you have unreasonable expectations for them given their current situation. I do think that people will want to rise to the expectations that are set for them. I think that is a general human feeling. Yeah, there's people that don't. You know, there's people that are perfectly happy or content or whatever, just living however they're living and they don't care. That's 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 always gonna be the case. But I think the majority of people, if you have a reasonable expectations and they know it's coming from a place of, even if it's not love, it's coming just from a place of this is just societal expectation. I think people want to attain that, but a lot of them are really hard to attain. And especially once you've made a mistake or once you've gone down a path. And again, there's a whole other, I mean, that's a whole other conversation just from the way our criminal justice system makes it difficult for people to reintegrate after they've made mistakes. You know, even if it was something like drug use, which often is, I won't say a victimless crime, but it's usually something that's, you know, focused on themselves. And obviously there's ripple effects, but it gets really hard for those folks to reintegrate and to have a job or to have housing or to have things like that. And so the enabling part, I think that's just really just, you have to understand your mission. You have to understand what the science is saying about what you're dealing with. And yeah, I do think there is definitely enabling. There's There are things that parents can do that are not helping their kids that are struggling with substance use, certainly. There are things that you all could do in the domestic violence realm that is not helping that individual to get back on their feet the way they should. But I think talking through that stuff and acknowledging the reality on the ground isn't enabling. That's just, it's just reality. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it is. And that's hard for people because when you've never experienced it, it's easy to say, well, why would you do that? Why would you stick a needle in your arm? Why would you, you know, go back to somebody that hits you? I don't, you know. I don't get it. Right. But there's, I will say with addiction, especially if you look at brain scans and granted, this is an audio podcast, but if you had the ability to look at a brain scan of somebody who had an addicted brain and then compared it to a healthy brain, like the dopamine, like the way dopamine fires in the brain, like it is, it's, it is obvious. And that doesn't start to heal and to look normal for like 12 to 18 months. So like 30 day programs, I don't want to say they're garbage. They're not. They're a good start, but 30-day programs are the start. Like Very few people achieve sobriety, long-lasting sobriety in 30 days because your brain isn't even, it's just, you're just starting to figure out what that looks like. And it takes many, many months for your brain to get back to normal levels of dopamine response to where you actually can feel things the way a normal person would feel them, the way a normal healthy brain would feel them. So again, once you just kind of start to understand the science behind it and that this is not just a moral thing, you know, it's not, I mean, I don't want to say not just, it's not really a moral thing. There, there may have been some bad choices early on, but as it progresses, it, it becomes something way more than that. I'm so glad you said that about 30-day program is really just the beginning process of the sobriety path, you know? If sobriety, full sobriety is where we're where that individual is wanting to take it. Because I think we have a tendency, and I, I don't mean to speak for all, I don't mean to, but just from my conversations with folks, oh, you've completed a 30-day program, hooray, check that off, now we're going to move on to other things. And so two things concern me about that previous 
process is one, they might be really at risk of overdose because they might start using and their tolerance is down. So we really need to wrap around folks a little bit and have conversations and safety and and let folks know that if they do use, this could be an issue, right? And I think later on you have something about kind of go low and slow, right? If you're going, which is a weird place again for an advocate to talk. Okay, so if you're going to use, let's talk about how you use. But the other piece is it does take, it takes a long time for that to occur. So we as program providers that are often getting folks in from that re-entry, right? They're coming into community living. Is our programming changing around that? Again, to compare it to domestic violence, we will often say, there's not a whole lot you're doing in that first 30 days of of shelter living other than getting a person to feel safe, rested, get some sleep. They've got food in their tummy because otherwise they're just sort of in that fight, flight, major crisis place. You're not doing major therapy at that point. You're not making major decisions where you're going to live and all this stuff in that initial 30 days. It's just the beginning of a long road of sort of figuring out and, and stabilizing. So it sounds really similar to what you're saying. And I think we set ourselves up for disappointment or frustration or I just don't get it. If she if she or he really cared about their kids, they just want to do this, right? Like all those things kind of come into play. And I think we would just do a much better job if we, from the get-go, using research, had a better understanding of what that looks like upon release. Yeah, for sure. So the big, I think, elephant in the room, if that's the right thing, and the big introduction to we've been using and um, substances for a long time, long history of things, but fentanyl has been a bit of a game changer. It has. Um, so fentanyl, I always, when I do my presentations to groups, especially when I have the ability to do like more than just a walk-up sort of chat, I pause on fentanyl for a bit because uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings around a lot of irrational fear. It is a 100% synthetic product. So like by comparison, heroin, which is also an opioid, I you know it's, it's kind of like a natural, it's an agricultural product, if you will, because it derives from the poppy plant and then they process it down for opium and then further distill it to get heroin. So there's an agricultural component to it. Whereas fentanyl 100% can be synthesized. I say in a lab, but the reality is what we're seeing now is being done in lean-tos and in forest clearings and in garages and wherever the the cartels and the folks that are making it can make it. 50-gallon drums. I mean, this is not controlled laboratory uh, environment. And the prescription product, most people when they are exposed to fentanyl in a prescription realm, it's a patch. Duragesic is the most common product that you see. It's used in hospitals a lot too for anesthesia and other things like that. But uh, in the the actual retail pharmacy side, commercial pharmacy side, or uh, community pharmacy side, I should say, you see the patch. It's worn 48 to 72 hours. It, It slowly pushes the drug through the skin over that time. That's important. And I like to make the distinction because our skin is not it's a great barrier. Stuff does not readily absorb, or most things don't readily absorb through the skin just with casual contact. And so like same with fentanyl, that patch took years and millions of dollars to design a product that actually would push the drug through the skin. So the the stuff you're hearing about now, the stuff that you hear about on the news uh, is not prescription fentanyl. It's illicitly manufactured or non-pharmaceutical fentanyl. And not to get into the chemistry side too much, but you know you can take a structure of something, a chemical structure, and the, the same, the, the core structure is the same, but then you start tagging other compounds on it and it slightly changes the structure so that it's still a fentanyl 
product, still fentanyl analog, but it's not exactly the same. It may have slightly different potency. It may show up differently in drug screens. You may not be able to test for it at all because that one compound makes it something that your screens aren't looking for. And where that's particularly problematic is a harm reduction method you know, with fentanyl test strips. If you're familiar with those, if you've heard of those, some of your listeners, that may be a new concept. Fentanyl test strips have been around for a while. They're very much like pH strips. If you've ever used those in your chemistry class from high school or college, or if you've ever had a diet where you're trying to check your body's pH and you, you check your urine or you check different things like that. It's just a strip. You get some of your drug supply that you're using in water. You dip it in there and then it will tell you within a minute or two whether there's fentanyl detected. They're not perfect because they can't text, test for all the analogs. There's dozens of fentanyl analogs out right now that are more or less fentanyl, but with some slight tweaks to the, the chemistry. But the idea with those from a harm reduction perspective is if you detect fentanyl in your drug supply, you either don't use that product or you say, I'm going to do a test dose. I'm going to do a lower dose just to see how it affects me. And so the whole goal is just to reduce the risk for overdose death, which in turn, you know, reduces or overdose, which you know, reduce uh, risk of death and also just all the other societal costs, you know, ambulance runs, all that stuff. So there's that. But to circle back to fentanyl, there's a lot of misunderstanding. Most of the fentanyl, as far as we know, is coming from, you know, from Mexico, from the drug cartels there. I say before that's I say that not to be make any kind of political statement. That's just the reality. That's that's where it is right now. That was where heroin's primarily coming in, and now fentanyl has become a cheaper alternative for them than even heroin, because as I mentioned, heroin's an agricultural product. So you've got to grow it, you've got to process that. That takes time. This you just mix it up and you're good. And so the the problem is that the raw materials are all legitimate products. They're all things that are used in other industrial applications. So you can't like ban the raw materials. And so you may have, you know, remember back a couple of years ago, the I think it was the Biden administration, but it's either Trump or Biden, either one, but they put pressure on China because a lot of it was coming from China and they're like, you guys got to stop this. And so you know, supposedly the Chinese government has clamped down on their manufacturers for actually producing the raw product. But the workaround for that is they can still make materials that you use to make fentanyl and then they ship those. And there's other com- countries shipping them out as well. You know, you, you can trace it to a lot of different countries. But right now the nexus is really coming from from the Mexican cartels. And because it is so potent, it's like 50 times more potent than heroin and 100 times more potent than morphine. It doesn't take much. Like when you hear like a kilogram of fentanyl, that is a lot of fentanyl because it's dosed in micrograms and that's a kilogram. So we're talking huge, huge quantities as far as what it can do on the street. But it's showing up uh, really in two ways on the street now. It's either adulterating products or counterfeiting products. And both are equally nefarious. Adulterated products, you know, in Kentucky, meth is still really the drug of abuse for the most, most, Kentuckians and meth is a stimulant. So it's not an opioid. It's an upper versus a downer. If that, you know, kind of helps put it in perspective from really basic terms and meth now, from what I hear, from what I've been hearing, it's, it's hard to find meth that does not have fentanyl cut with it. Most of that's intentional at this point. And some of it is people seek it out because, you know, if you've, heard historically the idea of like a speedball, like a stimulant and a present together, same concept. This is just a modern take on it. And some people like that feeling. They like that sensation. Some people don't want it. That's not what they're looking for, but they they have no choice at this point because it's just there. And it may be there intentionally, maybe there accidentally, because I, you know, I don't think most of the, the folks at the mid-levels are, that are processing drugs are not using, they're not necessarily cleaning their services, are not using like sterile processes. So I mean, if you do something with fentanyl on it and you don't clean it and then you cut cocaine on it or you cut fentanyl then or meth, you know, you're gonna have some just mixing cross-contamination in. regardless. But the reality is I think more and more drug dealers are using it to stretch their supply, to change their supply. You know, it's counterintuitive, but I've been told by more than one person who's either in recovery or currently using drugs that when you hear that somebody's died, the first question is where they get their stuff. And then you go and try to find that same dealer, that same person to get it from because it's again, it's counterintuitive because of, you know, you would think rationally, you're like, I don't want to be anywhere near that because I don't want to die. But there's just that 
that desire in some cases for something different, a different fix, a different whatever, because you do get numb to stuff over time. That happens with any product, I think, even when you're not dealing with substance use. So the adulteration in that way is, is problematic. And then the counterfeiting is a, a really big problem as well, because people that are buying what they think is like an oxycodone 30 tablet or a Xanax tablet or any number of things on the street, the the presses for these pills and the company, the, the, the drug dealers and the cartels have gotten so sophisticated, they can make a pill look like anything they want. So they can make it look like a yellow Xanax bar that it's got the score marks and the markings and everything. And so by all accounts, it looks exactly like the product you think it's supposed to be. But the reality is it has no alprazolam in it. It has fentanyl and other inert ingredients and dyes. And again, we're not talking about people that are doing like really controlled we know exactly how much fentanyl is in this. This is, it, you could have enough in one tablet that could be lethal for, you know, a large animal, you know, a horse maybe, and then another one maybe not have much in it. And so there's not a lot of standardization there. And so that's really problematic though for people who are opioid naive or who do not use opioids. They don't have a tolerance because if you get fentanyl in your system, you know, in pharmacy, we don't, if you came to me with a prescription for a duragesic patch in my pharmacy and you did not have a history of other opioids, we're not going to fill that prescription because that you have to have a tolerance, some sort of opioid tolerance to be able to to handle fentanyl. That's just best practice. And it's safe, you know, because you can die from fentanyl poisoning same way, you know, you stop breathing if you just get your fentanyl patches or your duragesic patches. And so on the street though, there's nobody looking out for that. And so if somebody gets a tablet they think is one thing and it's fentanyl, it's it's often fatal. So that's really, you know, where it's coming in. The problem one of the concerns I have is some of the misinformation that's out there. There's a lot of concern that you can overdose on fentanyl by touching it, by you know practically looking at it in some cases, breathing it in. It is not easily aerosolized. I mean, unless somebody's got a large bag of fentanyl and they drop it and it just like blows up as a cloud and you walk into the cloud, this is not a product that aerosolizes easily. And so if we were seeing these kind of problems, drug dealers would be dropping like flies because they're not, I mean, they might wear a mask. I don't know. I'm not there when they do it, but I doubt very seriously they're using a ton of precautions. They're certainly, you know, as far as their hands are concerned, I'm sure coming into contact with stuff. Tablets in particular, unless you ingest it, the tablet is is a very inert product until it's actually ingested and start to be, or, or, crushed and snorted or something like that. But either way, you're having to get it in your system. Casual contact with your hands. I don't want to say it's impossible, but for practical purposes, it is virtually impossible to overdose by touching something. You know, I've mentioned this and I don't, I don't mean it to be any kind of a disparaging comment towards the individual that posted it. But back last summer, if you're in the Lexington area and you're on Facebook, you probably saw a post go viral about a person claiming to have overdosed by picking up a dollar bill in McDonald's bathroom. I truly oh, yes, I did yeah. see that. <laughs> yes. And and I'll be honest, I looked at it at one point and it had been shared, and this was within three or four days of seeing it, it had been shared a quarter of a million times. Because if you see that, you're like shared this million times. And I'm like, holy cow. And I don't know how many of that was sharing to say this is bogus, this is crazy, don't believe this, and how many was just sharing as a you know people just reflect when sharing, like, oh my gosh, you know, watch out. The reality is that probably didn't happen the way. Yes, the person probably picked up a dollar and they may have been seen for something, but what I what I believe happened, and this kind of bears out with their their posts as well as they freaked out. Like they went on a panic of, okay, I just did something really dumb. This may have fentanyl on. And then your brain kind of takes over at that point. And I really believe that that's what happens with most like law enforcement first responders. Not that none of them have ever had a contact exposure and, and had problems, but the vast majority, I think it's a panic attack and that people don't want to hear that because they think that's almost insulting. And I'm like, it's not like that's physiology. Like if you believe something can kill you normally for law enforcement, normally for the other groups, they can, they can control the situation either with you know, force, either with their authority, with gun, whatever they, they're in control. And that's good. That's kind of the point. You can't control drug exposure or perceived drug exposure and how your brain responds to it. And so if you believe that it is that lethal, it's going to cause you to freak out. I think it's getting better because I think 
unfortunately, more and more police are handling fentanyl. It's showing up more, so they're handling it in evidence. And, and they're realizing that, okay, as long as you kind of just use common sense, you're fine. You keep your hands out of your mouth, your eyes, your nose, things like that. So my biggest thing when I teach people is just, one, don't ever hesitate to help someone because you're worried about contact exposure. The reality is most drug users that have succumbed are not, they're not going to have like necessarily like tons of powder or residue on them anyway. You know, they're very, they conserving their product is important to them. They paid money for that. They, you know, that's not something they want to waste. And so don't ever hesitate to help somebody and just use common sense. If something seems unsafe, like if there is a powder on somebody, maybe don't give them, maybe don't put your mouth in there if that's a concern or don't touch it. But uh, it's really, you do have to ingest or inject it. It is very dangerous if you ingest or inject it. But, you know, there's a recent report back last summer. It was a pharmacist in an emergency department. And this happens more often than people realize. He was disposing of a bag of fentanyl and it liquid and it ruptured got in his hand. He had a cut in his hand. This happens. It wasn't a big deal, but he's like, Hey, we're going to write this up because we've seen so much you know, pushback, so much misinformation. So they worked him up, did drug test, every nothing. There was no blood, no levels of fentanyl detected in his blood, no signs or symptoms. And so it was published because they wanted to put out some stuff in the literature that pushes back against some of this narrative. So fentanyl is dangerous. It is driving the overdose death rates right now, but for the casual person responding, it is not something that I would be worried about at all. You know, going back a little bit to community living pieces, it's really important, I think, to hear that because our folks that'll sign up, you know, to be advocates are usually women gender studies folks, social work folks, you know, they just don't have all this background. They learn it pretty quickly, right? Being in shelter living, you learn it pretty quickly. And then certainly onboarding with training and orientation and listening to things like podcasts, but it can be an overwhelming and sort of scary position to be in. And then you get all of this information. So I have staff that are like, I'm not comfortable cleaning out that room. Well, that's like daily 101 of shelter living, right? You know, like you got to prepare a room for the next, you know, family to come in, somebody didn't return, you got to pack up their stuff. And folks are truly, you know, really worried about that. And we always talk about, you know, how to do it safely, if you're going to be doing a little bit of a room search or wearing gloves and, you know, all of those things. We have naloxone in our shelter. I'm not thinking for folks that are room cleaning, but, you know, it's just available. But it's just another added stress and anxiety. So I I really wanted to spend some time in dispelling because honestly, I didn't have, you know, a PhD in that. I believed it to be true, but I think I was losing some legitimacy in my shelter program of like, Diane, you think everything's okay. Nothing's, you know, but I just, it seemed a little preposterous, but I'm really glad to hear that because I, I do think our frontline folks are doing really heroic and stressful and anxious ridden work. And that just seemed to be a whole another layer of stuff that they didn't need to deal with that probably wasn't even... And that's what I tell police, and I'm like, your job is hard enough as it is. Yes. Be smart. Don't add further stress that you don't need right now. Just be smart about it. Yeah. That's what I tell people. So speaking of fentanyl, we're talking about folks that, that therefore I think are at a higher risk of overdosing. What are we looking for as we're coming into contact either sure. again with family member and or one of our, you know, families that are living in our in our programs? What are we what are we paying attention to? So I mean ultimately with overdose, you're looking for unresponsiveness at the end of the day. Breathing is going to be hard to tell because I mean, somebody could be breathing, but it may be so shallow that one, it's not enough to sustain life for them, but they're still breathing um, or you just may not be able to detect it. I tell people all the time, an overdose is going to look like multitude of other medical emergencies, heart attack, stroke, diabetic coma, seizure. Like it's hard for even trained professionals to just look at somebody and say, oh, that's an overdose. Unless you see a needle in somebody's arm, which is 
very possible. You may see drug paraphernalia or obvious overt signs, but ultimately you're looking for unresponsiveness. You, know, you try to do a sternal rub on them if they're not responding to their name being yelled, you know, press really hard on their breastbone with their knuckles. If that doesn't get a response. You know something's wrong. And really at that point, the great thing about naloxone is you can't really hurt somebody with it. It's it's a very it's a very safe drug. It really there's no maximum dose. There is no drug interactions. There's no disease interactions. So if somebody is having a heart attack and you hit them with naloxone, it's not going to make that heart attack worse. It won't help it, but it is not going to make it worse. And so when you're talking drug overdose death, that is a lack of oxygen. The brain dies, and then the rest of the body goes with it. And so your brain doesn't have to die for it to be problematic, though. You could still have anoxic brain injury, which could lead to a host of problems down the road for you. And so restoring breathing is critical. And so that's why when you, if somebody, especially in the shelter, but anywhere, if you have you know, listeners that are, that carry naloxone with them, or if they want to, and you only get it, it's critical just to administer the naloxone as quickly as possible. Certainly if you can call 911, that's great. And you, you should, but if you can get them naloxone, you know, that there's some discussion, whether it's better to call 911 first or get them the naloxone first. Really, if you're trying to reduce the, the risk for anoxic brain injury, administering the naloxone is quickly as possible is the best chance for that person to recover from that overdose and to hopefully not have complicating problems beyond. And then you want to still call 911 afterwards because they'll go the good back Samaritan into law. it. Well, that's yeah. also part of the Good Samaritan law. For you to be protected as an individual, you want to make sure you're activating the emergency response chain. You also, unfortunately, just because and it's more too would take too long to get into it, but just know that you also want to tell people that you suspect that it's an overdose because that activates some good Samaritan protections for the individual that you're responding to as well. Just say we suspect that it is, we think that this might be the case. But yeah, you you want to you want to get them the naloxone quickly, and and again, it's you can't really hurt somebody with naloxone. That's the great the great part about it. I had a staff person actually, or no, 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 sorry. I had a woman that was living in shelter this about a year or so ago, come up to one of the staff person and really was worried that she had taken over her limit. She was afraid she had taken something of, that was going to kick her into. Of uh, what? I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. something in general. Okay. Yeah. And so they administered Narcan while she was still up and talking. Does that make sense? I mean, I understand. It makes sense from a, if you're thinking through and you're thinking it's probably not necessary because the reality is if a person is not showing signs of overdose or being dosed period, like if they're not showing increased drowsiness and the point of nodding off and like if somebody's talking to you and it's like, oh, I think I may, then it's probably more best to observe. That's what I thought. Uh, she was getting drowsy, but I thought to me, you would just call 911 and, and get paramedics come out. Like she had said that or she you thought she had- observe the individual yeah. and monitor them because yeah. obviously not letting them be by themselves at that point is critical. You yeah. just want to make sure that somebody's watching them. And if they do start to, to become incredibly unresponsive or really difficult, then at that point, you know, naloxone is not necessarily a bad idea. It is important to understand that when you administer naloxone, you are, you're going to put the person into withdrawal. And that's not life-threatening really ever unless the person's already like severely dehydrated and has some other issues going on. But it's going to be a really unpleasant experience for them. Like withdrawal is not fun for somebody that uses drugs. You know, they're dope sick. And that's, I've talked to enough people that there's a point at which drug use becomes not about getting high, but about not getting sick. And so you're going to make them dope sick. And so that's, again, could drive them to a faster return to use. And they may be using the same contaminated product with fentanyl. So that's problematic. You hear people talk about violence when people get reversed from overdose. And that's probably not the way withdrawal as much as it maybe is the anoxic brain injury or brain, you know, just not having the oxygen. That's more consistent there. Certainly somebody could be aggravated with withdrawal, but you know, usually if you think through what withdrawal looks like, it's the person almost like wants to go crawl in a corner and like just like sit in the fetal Ball position. Up, yeah. you know, like it's which it's is not another, so much I want to come up swinging kind of thing. Right. Which is another <laughs> worry of mine. I was finding people that were hesitant to, 
we always gave our kid, I don't mean to say we didn't, but always a little hesitant that someone's going to come up swinging, right? right? You know, and so- And so and the those, earlier you can give it, probably the better, because again, you're reducing the risk. Because if you didn't see the person go under, then you don't know how long they've been without oxygen. And so that's really, the, that's the critical, critical part there. And I know we're getting sort of to the end of it, but you mentioned withdrawal. And so any sort of words of wisdom around that, like I, I will hear many times folks going, well, I think they're going through active withdrawal. They need to be hospitalized to kind of go through this. It needs to be a medical withdrawal. Is that true of some substances and not so others? Alcohol withdrawal can be fatal if it is not managed accordingly. Opioid withdrawal is just a really bad experience. Like it's not, again, it's usually not fatal unless there's, you know, if you, if you're severely dehydrated and you're vomiting and that sort of thing, then yes, you can have some issues, but I don't know that you need medical withdrawal, but it's from a healthcare perspective, just from a human perspective, if you can maybe minimize that for an individual so that it is not as bad, then yeah, just from a human perspective, it's not a bad idea. It's not, that's not my primary concern when I'm trying to help somebody, you know, from an overdose, but if we can, if we have the ability to to mitigate that, then like it's just from a human perspective, we don't necessarily want the person to suffer. I mean, right. there may be some people that do, that's a whole other story, you know, like, you know, teach them a lesson kind of thing, but you're not teaching them anything other than that's a crappy. I think ours tends to come from some of the women were like, I just, I just want to tuck in my room for a couple of days. I'm going to be okay. Many times I'll go, I've kind of gone through this before, like just check on me. And then I think staff worry that, you know, that she might die. And so they want to send her to- Not the from hospital. the overdose, but if, the, if she were to have access to other drugs and to use again, then you definitely want to check on people for sure. If you, that's, being alone is the, the most dangerous part of that because you can't, reverse an overdose right, yourself. Right. I do. I know you haven't mentioned it, but I do want to take a mention a yes. moment to just something that's in the news that people are going to hear about. Naloxone is going over the counter. This has been talked about for years, but it's actually happening now. And the first one that's going to go is Narcan in all likelihood. The FDA approval date is set for March 29th, I believe, if I remember the, the numbers correctly. And we probably won't see a product on the shelves until late spring or early summer is just my guess. I don't know. We're kind of in a holding pattern with not knowing what to expect yet, but that product, the four milligram nose spray will be over the counter by this summer for sure. And then another three milligram nasal spray is is right there in the wings with it. And then there's another product that they're working on that's a, like a two milligram swab. So those are all, that's going to start changing just what how we approach naloxone. Hopefully we'll increase access for a lot of people. I don't think it's going to change the price a ton. It'll still be my guess, 30 to 40 bucks over the counter. It's just my best guess right now, but it'll take away some of the, the, the the barriers or perceived barriers with the prescription status. So that's coming. I just want to make sure your listeners knew to, to expect to see that. And and again, it's going to change a lot of what we do. We just don't even know how yet. It's one of those things, right, that, that it seems like an odd space to be in. But at the same time, I have administered it before. I am not you know, doctory by any means. It is an easy thing to do. Period. It is not, you know, so people I think get afraid. I don't know what they're going to do. I'm going to do it wrong. I'm going to all these things. It is not a hard thing to do. And we have a lot of staff that, you know, either work to, or live downtown Lexington. They just carry it with them when they go take the dog for a walk. Like we're just sort of getting to be a bit of a community that's prepared because you don't know when you might stumble upon somebody who's needing assistance. So let's just be a good Samaritan and offer aid when folks are coming in. We don't do this as well as I'd like to say we do because we don't have enough 
but I'd like when folks come in is just to automatically give them Narcan so that they, if they are using or they're using with partners and we're talking about safe using, they just have it with them, but you can't administer it yourself. So again, it's sort of using in a buddy system, but it really has changed. Again, I don't want it to be like, oh, this is just the way the world is now, but it is the way the world is right now. So let's help folks out. Absolutely. Yeah. So I so appreciate you coming on today, Jody. I don't know if you have any final thoughts before we kind of wrap up for today. No, I mean, other than just, you know, to encourage people to be willing to learn how to use naloxone, how to carry it. It's super easy, especially the sprays, but there's, there's three, three main products in the market now, and they're all, you know, straightforward. Two of them are sprays, one of them's an injection, and they're all easy to use, but there's a lot of places you can go. I mean, you can go to your local health department, especially if there's a syringe service program. If you have either commercial or even Medicaid insurance, like all commercial plans and Medicaid will pay for naloxone once a month at no charge to the individual. And the commercial plans will cover it to some point. You can just walk in your pharmacy, almost any pharmacy you can walk in and say, hey, I'd like to get naloxone. You don't have to see a doctor. The pharmacist you know, can actually generate a prescription right there, then and there. Certainly the OTC is going to change some of that and make it even easier. But we've even got a copay program that the state has through the Kentucky Opioid Response Effort that'll pay up to $60 of your copay. You know, when I can get that information to you, you can you can share that with your listeners as well later. But, but yeah, there's, there's lots of ways we don't want access to naloxone to be a barrier to be able to carry it and to use it. Is it going to fix all the overdose deaths in Kentucky? No, it's not going to fix it all, but it certainly is better to have it and never need it or never use it than to not have it when you do. Absolutely. And and sort of to mimic you in the beginning of the conversation of doing shout outs, our local health department has been phenomenal in training us, preparing us, giving us um, Narcan for our folks in, in our community setting. And KCADV, we talk a lot about that in the podcast and in all the series, but they're a wealth of information. And they also have connected us to folks that can supply Narcan. Definitely have Jody, you coming in to have conversations about it because we kind of get it and we get all kind of jazzed up and then we go back to our program. We're like, oh my gosh, this is an overwhelming thing. So please reach out to KCADV if you're needing support and you have questions or you need connections to Narcan. They usually can help with that too. So thank you so much. Absolutely. You've been listening to KCADV podcast series. Again, my name is Diane Fleet. And thank you so much for joining us in for this conversation on overdose awareness, recognition, response with Jody Jaggers, who's the director of pharmacy public health programs. This Zero V project, formerly known as KCADV, Kentucky Coalition Against Domestic Violence, was supported by the Department of Justice Coalition's grant 15JOVW-22-GG-00889-STAT. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this project are the views of the authors and do not reflect the views of federal, state, local, and or private funders.